Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive. Does the Marines' new modernization plan go too far? One of its former commandants thinks so. Plus, the Supreme Court looks ready to help out false claims whistleblowers. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the General Services Administration is giving the public new online tools to access federal resources more quickly. That's all being done through an upgraded USA.gov that addresses feedback from users who got lost on the site looking for specific services or information. As part of Federal News Network CX Exchange, FNN's Jory Heckman spoke with the acting director of GSA's public experience portfolio, Leilani Martinez. This is actually work that's been happening for over a year. But the last six months, we actually had available to the public a beta version of our sites. We had beta.usa.gov and the Spanish equivalent for that. So it was a wonderful experiment, but also a way to gather feedback from the public and improve before we actually graduated the sites out of beta. And the idea behind that effort was to really improve the experience for the public. We've been really spending lots of time looking at our data, quantitative and qualitative data, learning more about our users, understanding their pain points. And then we worked to really take all those learnings and implement a better version of our sites. Okay. And to, you know, look at this a little bit more broadly, can you explain to me the value of having a website that exists at the digital front door uh, and helping those customers out there, the public better understand and better navigate the services that they're looking for? Absolutely. So something we've learned over the years and research has shown that people don't know how government is organized. They don't really need to know. When they come to us, they're looking for something really specific. They have a task in hand, they have a need that they need to address, and they come to us trying to look for answers to their questions. So that's the value of USA.gov and USA.gov in Espanol. We are agency agnostic. We've actually aggregated information from across the government and organized that by topics. So you really don't need to know how well government is organized, which program or which agency is responsible for which program, you come to us, you look at the list of topics that we have on our site, and you navigate and get to those answers. One of the main things that we've been able to improve based on all the data and the research and usability testing we've conducted over the last few months is that really in our previous sites, we had a lot of information. It was information overload on our pages. And data really showed us that when people were coming to our sites, they were getting a little lost. So actually, one of the main changes that you will see on the new USA.gov and USA.gov in Espanol is that we have one user need per page, which is actually we've reduced the number of links on the page. Some of the pages only have one call to action or very small number of supporting links that will direct 
the public to the right answers. So the idea is really to streamline and simplify the experience so people can get the information quicker and faster. And we are ensuring that they're getting to the right information and to the right agency that's going to help them with their need. Okay, great. And it's interesting that this beta site has been up for so long and that folks have been able to kick the tires, so to speak, and do the sorts of things that you just mentioned. Are there other things, other feedback that you've gotten over that course of that six months that has been valuable for the non-beta version of the site, the site that's now live on USA.gov? So one of the things, we, we did some really interesting things in terms of the way we're gathering feedback, but also doing usability testing. So right now, we don't have the beta up anymore. We were able to graduate out of beta. So what you see is the new versions of the site. But for some time, when we had both the beta site and our regular site up, we were doing comparative usability testing, which was really, really great because we were able to seize that opportunity to really test with the public similar content on both the beta site and on the regular site. And we were seeing how people were, where they were struggling but also how we were improving the experience by the way we were presenting or structuring content on the new sites. One of the things, for example, that it's new on the site as well, based on all the research we did, was we created and we're experimenting still with interactive tools or what we call wizards. And the idea behind that really is to, once again, streamline and improve that experience. So we present the user with a set of questions just a couple, two or three, but it's really to kind of understand their context a little bit more. And that allows us to filter out the resources that are not applicable to them and then present them with the things that will actually help them. We actually are starting with two of those tools. We have a um, tool around scams and frauds. It's a very popular topic on, on USA Gov. And also contact your elected official. Right now, people can actually enter some information about themselves, where they live, and then they'll get a list of all their um, elected officials in their area as well. So they can reach out to them. Okay. Well, certainly something we hear time and again when we talk about customer experience and digital experience is that user-centered design. And so when you say things that are popular on the site, scams and fraud, contact your elected official, are these things that GSA from the jump thought these were services that would be valuable for the public? Are these things the public are saying that they are looking for? Is it a little bit of both? Help me better understand how those functionalities come into focus. We've always been user-centered, but especially with this kind of work we did with the beta sites and really going deep into our data, quantitative and qualitative data, and also our contact center data. I, I, I want to take that into account because I think that sometimes is a missing element sometimes in the work that we do, you know, taking into account the experiences and the input that we're getting from the public through other channels, such as the contact center. We use really all of that data to really kind of validate some of what we knew um, over the years. USA.gov has been in existence for over 20 years. USA Govern Español, um, 20 years this year. So there's things that we, we've always kind of known. There's topics that have always been popular on our site. But the different thing this time around is that research was really on the forefront. Understanding user needs was really a way for us to validate many things that we've been knowing over the years, but also kind of understanding what else are we missing here? And that's really what allowed us to really experiment with the interactive tools. We actually want to explore 
other areas where we can be using similar functionality to help people get to the answers that they need quicker. But yes, we've always known, for example, that topics around scams and frauds and passports and um, government benefits are really important on the English side. I want to emphasize, because if we're talking about customer experience, that what we do with our Spanish side is not a translation. We really embrace our product principles, and we designed a service and an experience for Spanish speakers the same way we do it for our English speakers. So we look at the, the data that we've collected over time that really shows what are the needs for Spanish speakers. And some are similar that the English speakers, some are not. One of the most popular topics on the Spanish side is immigration, immigration related issues. So as you can imagine, that section on our site is much more developed and provides much more context than the section on immigration on the English side. That was Leilani Martinez, acting director of GSA's public experience portfolio, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out more interviews from the CX Exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, the Supreme Court looks ready to help out false claims whistleblowers. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Supreme Court is considering right now a case that could boost federal whistleblowers bringing forth wrongdoing by contractors under the False Claims Act. The case underscores the importance of intent and its relevance in these cases. For details and why it's a landmark case, Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke to noted D.C. whistleblower attorney Stephen Cohn. Steve, tell us about this case. What is the Supreme Court looking at here precisely? Sure. So it's the super value case. And they're looking at what type of proof you need to show fraud. And the corporations, the Chamber of Commerce and the companies were arguing that if you could come up with a plausible legal argument, even after the fact that they didn't knowingly commit fraud, they could escape liability. So let me put it to a more understandable way and why... I believe the Supreme Court will completely reject these arguments. Somebody believes they're defrauding the government. You have actual evidence of their intent to defraud the government. In fact, they did defraud the government. But somewhere along the line, a company can argue that they should be let off the hook because there was a plausible argument that they weren't defrauding the government. So what they were saying was subjective evidence, in other words, evidence of the actual people ripping off the taxpayer, evidence of their intent to rip off the taxpayer could be ignored if the company came up with a rationalization that it was ambiguous whether fraud was occurring. Well, what would constitute evidence that they intended to commit fraud? Exactly. So in the case they were charging, the drug company was charging normal people, just anyone coming off the street, $4 for a drug, but they were charging the government $20 for the same drug. So if if a federal agent just walked in and bought it off the shelf, they'd save the taxpayer $16. 
So there were discussions while this was occurring where the salespeople understood that they were, you know, overcharging the government. But once they got caught, once the whistleblower turned them in with evidence of their knowledge, the company said, you know, we think the regulations were ambiguous at the time. And we think you could have plausibly argued that you could have charged people $20 for the prescription as opposed to 4 Sure. But did the whistleblower in that case have the objective evidence of intent there in that case? Well, they had the evidence that the people who were overcharging the government suspected or knew they were overcharging the government. And in fact, they were overcharging the government. You can't have a False Claims Act case, no matter what evidence you have. I mean, you could have a thousand emails about someone trying to steal money from the government, but if it's at the end of the day, there was no false claim being submitted, there'd be no liability. You need damage. So in this particular case, they were overcharging the government. The people involved at the time either knew or clearly suspected that they were, because the False Claims Act has a standard for reckless disregard. Sure. So if you kind of know what you're doing is wrong, but you disregard all the evidence that what you're doing is wrong, you're supposed to be found guilty. They have a willful ignorance standard, whereas if you put your head in the sand and just ignore all the evidence that you're committing fraud, you can still be found guilty. So the lower courts had completely turned this on its head. And were essentially, as the dissent in the lower court said, they're just giving crafty lawyers the ability to permit literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of ripoffs to the government. And we're speaking with the non-crafty Stephen Cohn, founding partner of <laughs> Cohn, Cohn, and Colapinto. And there are cases that have come up over the years, especially in federal pricing false claims acts, where, say, you had promised the lowest possible price in a GSA contract. And it really was administrative inadvertence, where a price was higher than perhaps another customer was getting, even another federal customer was getting. But that was the price originally negotiated on the GSA schedule. We're not talking about a case like that then, correct? Exactly. In order to have the liability under false claims, you need to show some form of knowledge and intent. So when they wrote the statute, it was either direct knowledge, you know, email, we're ripping off the government, willful ignorance, which was really designed for whistleblowers. A whistleblower comes forward to the company, presents evidence of fraud, and the company willfully ignores that evidence. Essentially, it's a way to empower internal compliance programs. If an employee goes to the compliance program with the evidence of the fraud, the company better take a serious look at it. And the third way is reckless disregard, meaning the evidence is in front of you and you choose to ignore it. So you have to have that. If it's a simple mistake, there's no liability. And the False Claims Act is not a negligence law. If you make a mistake, if you didn't really understand, but as the dissent to the lower court, you know, the court that went up on appeal said that the federal courts, quote, cannot tolerate 
deception. So if you have evidence that the company was engaged in deception, you have to find liability. And I attended the oral argument, and we did file you know, an amicus brief in the case. We studied it carefully. The judges were like, they were essentially saying this is a simple case. It's like, yeah, if you have evidence of deception, you can't ignore it. But what's really troubling is how were these arguments even raised? You know, how could the Chamber of Commerce legitimately come before the court and say you should ignore evidence of deception in a fraud case? That has never happened before. I mean, you can't do that. Sounds like those sirens weren't for you. Maybe they're headed to the Chamber of Commerce or something on that case. (laughs) But just a practical question. Suppose there is a clerk or a cost accountant or a billing clerk, and they are charging $20 to the government and $4 to the walk-in or the subscription drug recipient, whatever the case might be, and they don't know any better. Is that person in trouble, or is it just the person that gave them the fraudulent price list the one in trouble? And I guess the corporate officers would be part of it also. Okay, you just follow up the chain. So if the person at the lowest level is simply following the instructions, they're not going to be in trouble. If they're making a mistake, they're not going to be in trouble. But then you have to go to the knowledge of the person who created the instructions. Now, if they created those instructions in good faith, relying upon the regulations, they're not going to be in trouble, even if it's wrong. But if at the time they were drafting those regulations, a whistleblower inside the company stepped forward and said, you are deceiving the government, you know, and explained why, with plausible reasons, you know, why they were deceiving the government, that drafter, the company, would either have to address those issues or face potential liability if it turns out the whistleblower was correct. In that situation, you're in a case of either willful ignorance, they're just going to ignore the bad side, or reckless disregard for the law. Now, you can take it one step further, which is actual knowledge. The person who's drafting the regulations had actual knowledge that they were doing an act of deception. But the False Claims Act covers reckless disregard, willful ignorance, and actual knowledge. So what's significant here, and what came out in the court argument, when you're dealing with the government, you have certain legal and ethical responsibilities. It's not like you're a salesperson hustling up the best price you can get, you know, selling a used car. That's not the deal. There are rules for doing government contracting. Stephen Cohn is a partner at the law firm Cohn Cohn Colapinto, speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to Cohn's blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, there's a call for greater scrutiny of defense officials who transition to the private sector. We'll hear what it could mean for the companies that hire them. But first, does the Marines' new modernization plan go too far? One of its former commandants thinks so. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. 
The U.S. Marine Corps is currently embarking on a restructuring plan known as Force Design 2030. It looks to reshape its combat power for future conflicts with near-peer adversaries, i.e. China. It also looks to put a bit more reliance on technological advances by divesting in the sorts of protective measures it used to rely on for maintaining operational readiness. Some, though, feel the plan goes too far with these updates and could potentially lead to the U.S. losing the upper hand on the international stage. One of them is retired Marine General and former Commandant of the Marine Corps, Charles Krulock, who I spoke with earlier about his concerns. Let me start by saying this is not just me. I, I represent a group. Our group is made up of every living retired four star general in the Marine Corps. This includes every living commandant, assistant commandant, and combatant commander. It includes two former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a former Secretary of the Navy, and a former Secretary of Defense. So let me tell you what the concerns are. Go ahead. Which will lay out the Force Design 2030. Our concerns are simply put, we're concerned about the divestment of combat capability within the Marine Corps that our nation has always counted on. In the past three years, the Marine Corps has divested 21% of its infantry, 100% of its tanks, 100% of its bridging capability, nearly 100% of its mine clearing and mine breaching capability, 67% of its cannon artillery, 100% of its law enforcement battalions, and some 29% of its fixed-wing fighter attack aircraft and rotary-wing helicopter aircraft. And that doesn't count the significant amount of logistics capability that was also divested. Now, what was the rationale for these draconian cuts, which kind of gets to your question? It's to build a force, Force Design 2030, that's going to sit on islands within the first island chain off of China and wait for the Chinese Navy ships to sortie and then take them under missile fire if and when they come into range. I'm sure your listeners will understand that these forces, which are named stand-in forces, will be targeted immediately by the Chinese as they move to their island positions and as they remain on their island positions. They have a lot of electronics gear with them that's going to put out an electric, electronic signature. They have heat signatures are going to be produced. So the Chinese intelligence gathering capability is equal to ours. And I will tell you, as soon as the first round is fired, the stand-in force will be taking themselves under heavy and extremely accurate enemy missile fire. Equally disturbing to all of the people that I mentioned earlier is that the divestment of current capability has occurred while still experimenting with new capability. As an example, the missiles that we're trying to get, the command, control, and communications capability, all of those are being experimented with, and they will not be available 
in the quality, but more importantly, the quantity necessary. Think of the ammunition, the missiles, the quantity necessary for another seven to 10 years. That gap in time is a risk to our national security. Gotcha. As the defense defense budget increases, the capability of all the forces decrease, and in the case of the Marine Corps, it's a self-inflicted wound. So it sounds like an oversimplification of your argument, and I stress the oversimplification part, is that you seem to take the stance that the best defense is a good offense, or at least the threat of a good offense, and that may be where the change in the... uh, in the philosophy of, you know, hey, the future of warfare is long-range weapons and a more defensive posture, but you are saying that the Marine Corps should go with what has worked in the past rather than move forward and, and evolve into this new realm, or are you saying that they're just modernizing in, in a way that is forgetting what the lessons learned of the past? Well, you've hit a really key point. I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is, we, the Corps now, are more focused on a defensive posture. That's, that's pretty obvious, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that. that we're, we've been painted with the brush that we're just a bunch of old fogies who want to return to the good old days, that we don't understand the impact of new technology on warfare. Uh, that we don't recognize that the character of war has changed, that we don't know the latest intelligence. They're averse to innovation and new thinking. All of that is pure nonsense, and, and to many of us it's insulting. We've seen the impact of drones, loiter munitions, improved CQ die capabilities. We understand, as we did when we were on active duty, that the character of war changes. Absolutely. At the same time, we know from experience that the nature of war does not change. It is brutal, it's bloody, it's cruel to the extreme, and unforgiving of mistakes. And it's now being played out in living color in Ukraine. To think that all of a sudden warfare is going to be fought at a 150-kilometer distance, that there's not going to be any close-in fighting, that we're, we're going to be able to cyber our way across a river crossing, you know, or use deceptive means to to cross a minefield. It's just crazy. We understand we are all for capitalizing on technology. What we're not in favor of is divesting of capability before the new capability gets here. And the thought that somehow war is going to be antiseptic. You know, this is not Ender's game. And to think that it's going to be solved. I mean, how does a, how does a, a drone work in the jungle? How does a loitering munition work in the jungle? I mean, there's just so many improbable thoughts that you can fight. The actual character of war is going to change. And so what I, you know, my other question is in this age where mostly, you know, we're in sort of a new era that's not like the Cold War, but where posturing really is the name of the game nowadays. And it's just about sending messages. Could that be factoring into 
the military decisions that are being made from above saying, you know, if we show that we're ready for a theoretical war with China, somebody, you know, who we have differences with, but it haven't it hasn't escalated to that level yet. Is there a fear of escalation uh, to the point where they're, you know, trying to match us and we're just kind of button heads against each other? Uh, that's a very good point, and let me address that. Uh, first off, uh, we don't even have the authorization to go onto some of these islands, and the uh, Philippines has made it perfectly clear that they don't want us there if if we're going to war. Uh, the Japanese now are buying missiles and getting ready to, to help in the defense. If you're, well, let me back up. Uh, if you're going to look at capability and you've got great capability the navy with their submarines they're out there uh the air force with their long-range missiles on long-range bombers are out there the army with their multi-domain task force which does the same thing as the marine corps is out there if you are the president of the united states and you get indications and warning what are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that will really reinforce that you're serious is to take uh, the Marines that are out there and capable, not the ones that are sitting on islands, and show the Chinese that you're reinforcing the Korean Peninsula. You're reinforcing Japan with the troops that can do what needs to be done. But if you take away their capability, which they've done, and you heard what they're taking away, if you take away that capability, the threat's not there. Thinking that the Marine Corps sitting on these islands, so designated by the Chinese intel capability, are going to threaten the Chinese enough to stop them in their tracks, that's just wishful thinking. That's retired General Charles Krulock, 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps. There's more to this interview. You can find it at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Be sure to subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, there's a call for greater scrutiny of defense officials who transition to the private sector. We'll hear what it could mean for the companies that actually hire them. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Last week, the Senate Armed Services Committee heard testimony regarding a so-called revolving door between the Pentagon and the companies that it awards contracts to. The SASC's Personnel Subcommittee presented a report from Senator Elizabeth Warren on the topic. It expresses concerns about undue influence and potential ethical dilemmas of having so many former DOD officials working in the private sector. As you can imagine, this has the folks who represent the interests of those companies worried. To hear more about that and other legislative developments, I spoke to Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. The report that Senator Warren issued, um, she calls it an investigation. It's about a seven-page report on um, the number of former high-level DOD folks who have ended up in private sector. And this piqued our interest over an industry because, you know, obviously we are the folks who are looking for to hire expertise, to hire people with high integrity, such as those coming out of the uniformed services. And so this was a, a hearing that we watched very, very closely. 
And involved in it were several branches of the military as well as DOD. Uh, I I am curious what the uh, government side of uh, folks said, whether or not they've even found it an issue or not. You know, a few years ago, Senator Warren introduced legislation to increase restrictions on post-government employment. And I'll call that PGE, post-government employment. You know, right now you have a two-year cooling off period, et cetera. The DOD folks, um, and I'll say it's, it was the general counsel folks, um, so it was DOD, Army, Navy, and Air Force, you know, they think they have fairly tight constraints, ethical constraints on what post-government employment looks like for former high-level folks. For example, um, if you are a three- or four-star admiral or general, you have different requirements than, say, someone lower ranking if you were separating out of the service or, or retiring. And so they walked the committee through sort of what the considerations are in coming up with post-government employment restrictions. And so that's the perspective they came from, which was – we, they think the the restrictions are adequate, and obviously the the investigation from Senator Warren is is on the other side of the of the coin there of that they're not adequate that they should be tighter. One of the things that her report goes into is the number of former high level DOD folks who are they use the words uh, cashing in on their expertise or or otherwise. You know, in industry we don't really use that. The contractors look to hire you know former senior folks for their expertise. And as I mentioned earlier, for their loyalty, you know, they don't check their honor or their integrity at the door once they sign retirement papers. Um, they're still pretty loyal to the United States. And the contractors are generally as committed to the federal mission set as government employees. And so, you know, from an industry perspective, we do take a, a couple of issues with the report that Senator Warren put out. Yeah. And from the industry standpoint, I imagine that the main concern on your side of things is that certain companies may have more of a foot inside the door when they hire certain individuals. And, you know, that may break down the, okay, now, now we're facing against each other. You know, how do they address that? And, and what is your concerns from the PSC standpoint regarding that? Now, that's a great question. You know, the, I mentioned post-government employment restrictions. I know of no uh, former senior person who doesn't know their ethics lawyer's number by heart back at the Department of Defense. And so, you know, if anything comes up that is even crossing a line into undue influence, you know, they call that person up. And so one of the things that we are looking for, you know, if, if Senator Warren reintroduces that legislation, is to have a conversation about what is appropriate at the end of the day, if you are involved in a contract award, you are for life not allowed to deal with the, the implications of, of that award. So, you know, we, we at PSC recently hired someone who had worked for the Navy and she has, she, she wasn't a, a senior executive service member, but she was a civil servant and she's got post government, you know, employment restrictions and she knows her government ethics lawyer number by heart and she can reach out and contact them at any point. And so I do think there are really good, I would say uh, safeguards in place, but I would like to have a conversation with Senator Warren and her staff who put together this report about what they're really trying to get at and, and how can we work together to get us there. And let's bring the focus back to the people who are actually doing these jobs, uh, other than obviously the money is probably pretty good and it's a nice little stipend after you retire. But uh, what are some of the other reasons for wanting to join private industry after putting in many years of government service? 
when you retire out of government service after decades of, of being in the military, you know, you have a, a built up a knowledge base and a skill set. Yes, you also have contacts because, you know, anybody who works in an industry for decades would have contacts. But really, it's the knowledge base that, that contract, you know, private companies are looking for. It's not so much, I would say, undue influence, which is, I think, also a phrase that, that the senator uses. I think it's also, you know, they are the ones who are familiar with the program. And I'll give you an example recently announced was this Australia, UK, US Trilateral Security Pact, which is also known as AUKUS. And it's a huge step forward to what we are trying to accomplish from a national security perspective in the Indo-Pacific area of responsibility. It wouldn't have happened without engagement on all sides, military, civilian, and industry. And I think as we move forward in things like that, bringing knowledge to bear is critical. And I think it's not like you can find a, someone who has the same experience and knowledge set as a three-star general or admiral just growing up organically outside of the military. You're going to have to take someone who is recently separated or retired. One other point, Eric, that I'll bring up is one of the individuals mentioned in the senator's investigative report is from a company, but they had left government 17 years before they started working for the private sector in this area. And so I would like to talk to the senator's staff about why they they cited somebody you know who's high level up in a def- large defense contractor, citing that as a revolving door issue when he waited 17 years before going into defense industry. I think, again, would really like to get at what the senator's trying to accomplish here and work with her and her staff to figure out what right looks like. That'd be a slow door to go into. <laughs> We're speaking with Stephanie Castro from the Professional Services Council. Uh, that wasn't the only concern defensively on the Hill uh, this month earlier in April, uh, DOD sent a third package of its legislative proposals to Congress, and it includes a way for them to kind of get started when Congress is lagging behind and giving them the funding for new projects. Uh, what can you tell me about what DOD sent to the uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill? More often than not, we do start the fiscal year under what's called a continuing resolution, which is a straight line. We don't have a a full year appropriation passed for the the coming fiscal year. So instead, they just do a straight line from the last approved full year appropriation. This legislative proposal is very interesting to me because it's about um, doing some design work um, and other sort of low rate production work on platforms that are really, really important. So things like hypersonics or kinetics coming out from a from a DOD perspective, I 100% see where they're coming from. Um, They would like to continue work um, under a continuing resolution. You cannot start a new program. And that often is a problem for these high-end, fast-paced requirements that are coming down. You know, whether they're considering a Chinese scenario or, you know, an Eastern European scenario, you know, we, we are trying to field capabilities at the speed of relevance. That's hard when you don't have full year funding. So I understand where the Department of Defense is coming from, where they'd like to be able to do some design work, experiments, et cetera. On the other hand, one of the big impetuses to pass a full year appropriation is because you can't start new starts. And members of of Congress go, you know, we would like to move forward and feel these capabilities. Let's go ahead and pass a full year appropriation. So I think this is this is going to be an interesting area to watch. I think there's probably going to be some reluctance on the Hill initially to consider this legislative proposal because it does give them an out. And, you know, people like to pass full year appropriations to get back to their districts and, and fundraise and do that kind of stuff. And so I think as we move forward watching this, I'm curious to see what arguments it comes with to the Hill for this legislative proposal. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 
An ongoing contract dispute between a local chapter of the American Federation of Government Employees and Management at the Army's Rock Island Arsenal in Illinois hinges on changes to the collective bargaining agreement made over the past two presidential administrations. Five years later, neither side has agreed to a contract. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore has been following this and now joins us with the details. Alexandra, how are we today? Yes, great. How are you, Eric? Good, good, good. So what is the status of the contract as it stands right now? Well, what what's going on right now is that there's a contract in place that the union didn't agree to. Management unilaterally put it in place and the union is protesting that. It's a dispute between employees at the Rock Island Arsenal. They make howitzer cannon parts, uh, mobile mobile repair modules and portable kitchens for army operations. And there are about four to 500 employees involved in this. And the army agency in charge of managing it is the joint manufacturing and technology center. So they sent a note a few weeks ago saying as of April 1st, they were putting in place this contract. And the union said, wait a second, we're in negotiations. We never agreed to that. You can't do it. It's illegal. Well, as of April 21st, that contract went into place. So on last Monday, management sent the employees a note saying, we've got a new contract in place. Everybody agreed to it. And this is what it is. And then on Tuesday, the local 2119 sent the union members another note saying, nope, that's wrong. We did not agree to this. It's an illegal contract. On Friday, management sent another email saying they were filing a complaint against the union for sending the first email. So nobody is really agreeing on any part of this. And the workers get stuck in the middle. How did this all get started? Well, they actually started bargaining in 2019. And at that time, the Trump administration put in an executive order about management's rights in the bargaining process. And so they negotiated their contract and then they sent it off to the Defense Civilian Personnel Advisory Service. That's sort of an, an, an HR agency that reviews contracts for them. That agency sent it back and said, nope, your contract is in violation of this Trump executive order. And so at that point, they filed an appeal and they sent it to the Federal Labor Relations Authority to mediate. Well, it took a long time to get back. So finally, at the end of 2020, FLRA got back to them and said, you know what? A new administration is about to take over. We're just going to ignore this whole thing and we'll see what happens under the Biden administration. Then what do you know? As soon as Biden was put in office, he signed a new executive order and that changed some of the management policies from the old Trump one. So everybody goes back to the bargaining table. And at this point, they can't agree. The union saying, well, we want to follow the new Biden executive order and have these policies for management. And by the way, these aren't things that affect the workers. They're really just part of collective bargaining. It's what management's allowed to ask for, how many employees in what positions. It's it's a bargaining issue, not a, a worker issue, really. So they didn't agree and they went on. And then in the midst of going back and forth, Four or five different versions of the contract showed up with changes from the original thing they'd agreed on, and nobody agreed on that. So finally, in the end, uh, management said, all right, well, as of April 23rd, the new contract's in place. And that's where they are right now. I can't imagine having the status of my job depending on a outcome of a presidential election, but that's where we are. So what are the major points of disagreement uh, that the both sides have laid out? 
they have to do with the two different issues. One is the management issue and management's rights in bargaining and who they have a right to, how many employees they have a right to have, how many employees in different positions. And then the other part is this whole thing about workers, workers' rights and the rules regarding employees at the arsenal. And those are things that were originally agreed to, but the union is saying, well, changes have been made that we didn't agree to. And the apparently management is saying, well, what what problems do you have? Here's a contract. And they've kind of gone back and forth like that. The Army's position at this point is that they're waiting to see what FLRA says, and they're not going to have any response until there's a decision from FLRA. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr with us. So what happens next? Where do we see this going? There are kind of a lot of players getting involved at this point. Local politicians, Senator Duckworth's office has weighed in in support of the union. Apparently, this is something that that just has never happened before. One official who I talked to said before the Trump administration put their executive order in place, something like this was kind of unheard of. What I'm talking about is the unilateral contract that both sides didn't agree to because the union, of course, can't strike their federal workers. But by law, they have to have a contract that both sides agreed to. And now there's a contract in place that only one side has agreed to. The union, for their part, says that they're going to follow their 2013 contract, which is the last one that they say was legally agreed to by all the parties. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thank you so much for filling us in, and we'll have you stop by whenever they do finally resolve this issue. Thanks very much, Eric. It'll be really interesting to see how it all turns out. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.